Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, May 27th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, we're going to be continuing our commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union, uh, that was formed uh, on May 25th of 1963, uh, Africa Liberation Day. And uh, we're also going to feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the letters sent by Sudanese Armed Forces General Abdel Fattah El-Burhan to United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres asking for the institution's envoy to be withdrawn from the country amid the continuation in fighting. The Somalian government has received pledges of security support from Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Senegalese opposition forces have clashed with the police, leaving one person dead. And the German parliament has agreed for their troops to remain in the West African state of Mali for another year. In the second and third hours, we will continue our commemoration of Africa Liberation Day, the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor uh, to today's uh, African Union, the AU. We will feature an exclusive interview uh, aired internationally with former South African President Thabo Mbeki, uh, who is in Guinea-Conakry for the annual Thabo Mbeki Lecture. Finally, we review the contributions of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah in the struggle for Pan-Africanism. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of the Le Amazon d'Afrique, uh, in their live concert at the Philharmonie uh, in Paris. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
connais
That was uh, the music of uh, Le Amazon d'Afrique uh, performing live at the Philharmonic uh, in Paris, France. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, May 27th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. United States Secretary General Antonio Guterres was, quote, shocked, unquote, by a letter from Sudan's military ruler demanding the removal of the United Nations envoy to the country. Sudanese and United Nations officials said earlier today, the letter by General Abdel Fattah Burhan, Sudan's top military official and head of the ruling sovereign council, comes as Sudan pledged into further chaos after worsening tensions between military rivals exploded into an open fighting last month. The Secretary General is shocked uh, by the letter he received this morning, uh, meaning yesterday morning. UN spokesman Stephanie Gerard has said the Secretary General is proud of the work done by the United Nations envoy, Volks Perthes, and reaffirms his full confidence in his special representatives. Gerard uh, didn't reveal the contents of the letter, However, a senior military official said Burhan's letter asked Guterres to replace Perthes, who was appointed to the post in 2021. According to the official, Burhan accused Perthes of being, quote, partisan, unquote, and that his approach in pre-war talks between the generals and the pro-democracy movement helped inflame the conflict. The talks had aimed uh, at restoring uh, the country's democratic transition was derailed uh, by a military coup in October of 2021. The official spoke on conditions of anonymity because he was not authorized to brief media. Uh, Perthes declined to comment neither on the letter. Burhan accused Perthes last year of, quote, exceeding the UN's mission mandate and of blatant interference in Sudanese affairs, unquote. He threatened uh, to expel him from the country. The ongoing fighting broke out in mid-April between the military and the powerful rapid support forces commanded by General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Both Burhan and Dagalo led uh, the 2021 coup that removed the Western-backed government of Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak. The fighting centered in the capital of Khartoum, uh, which was turned into a 
the battleground along with its sister city of Abdurman. The clash has also spread elsewhere in the country, including the war-wracked Darfur region. The conflict has killed 300, has killed hundreds of people, um, not an accurate count as of yet, and wounded thousands of others and pushed the country to near collapse. It forced more than 1.3 million people out of their homes to safer areas inside of Sudan or to neighboring nations. Sexual violence, including rape of women and girls, a common practice in Sudan's wars and political upheavals, were reported in Khartoum and Darfur since the fighting began. The Combating Violence Against Women's Unit, a government-run group, said on Friday it received reports of at least 24 cases of sexual attacks in Khartoum and 25 others in Darfur. The unit, which tracks violence against women across the country, said most of the survivors reported that the attackers were in RSF uniforms and in areas in Khartoum controlled by RFS, RSF checkpoints. The RSF did not respond to requests for comment on uh, this article. And in other news, Russia is ready to supply Somalia's army with military equipment in its war against terrorism. That's according to Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He made this comment yesterday. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov made the offer after talks with his Somalian counterpart, Abshir Omar Jama, in Moscow. Russia's top diplomat said Moscow reaffirmed his readiness to meet the material needs of the Somalian army in its fight against extremists that remain on Somalian territory, including al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda. The offer further underscores Russia's growing interest in the African continent, upstaging the West and countries facing conflict. Currently, uh, Russian uh, uh, mercenaries uh, Wagner Group are present in the Central African Republic in Mali, Mozambique, along with Libya. Somalia has faced numerous attacks from al-Qaeda's East Africa affiliate group, al-Shabaab, and recently the government embarked on what has been described as the most significant offensive against al-Shabaab extremists in more than a decade. The extremist group has held back the nation's recovery from decades of conflict. Russia's game plan in Africa has involved seeking alliances with various governments uh, shunned uh, by the West or facing insurgencies and internal challenges to their rule. The African leaders get recognition from the Kremlin and military muscle from the Wagner Military Services Agency. Uh, They pay for it by giving Russian prime access to their oil, gas, gold, diamonds, and valuable minerals. Russian influence was evidence when the United Nations 17 of the 35 countries that abstained from a vote on a resolution condemning the invasion of Ukraine were Africans. Somalia had voted in favor of Ukraine resolution, but has been working on improving relations uh, with Russia that uh, were severed in 1978 when Moscow backed Ethiopia in a war uh, with the previous military government in Somalia. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In the West African state of Senegal, clashes between police and supporters of the opposition leader in Senegal left one person dead and several injured. And that was uh, according uh, to reports uh, from uh, the Associated Press earlier today. Alou Borian was killed yesterday in the city of Kolda in the country's south, said friend Boubacar Balde. It is sad. It is a sad atmosphere 
that has overtaken the family, he said. Opposition leader Usman Sonko has called on his supporters to follow him in a freedom caravan from his hometown of Zigwenjor in the south and where, where he is the mayor to the capital, Dakar, from 750 kilometers, that's 460 miles away, where a verdict is expected next week on the charges that he is facing. Sonko is being tried for rape and death threats against a woman working at a massage parlor and could face up to 10 years in prison. If convicted, he would would, uh, be barred uh, from running in next year's presidential elections. Sonko did not attend the trial last week and was judged in absentia. He said he is protesting against injustice and will no longer respond to court summons. He and his supporters maintain his legal troubles are part of an effort by President Sall's government to derail his candidacy in the 2024 elections. The opposition leader recently received a six-month suspended prison sentence in a defamation case against Minister of Tourism, Mamie Mbai Nyang, to whom he now owes some $330,000 in compensation. It's not clear how Friday's clashes began, but on Sonko's Facebook page, smoke from tear gas could be seen, as well as a truck blocking the street where the caravan and hundreds of supporters were walking. Local media reported that several police trucks and security forces were deployed to the area. Demonstrations have already turned violent in the lead-up to the trial. Senegal's government says it will stand firm against any attempt to disrupt public order. And finally, German lawmakers yesterday gave the go-ahead for the country's troops to stay in Mali for up to another year, part of a plan to bring Germany's involvement in a United Nations military mission in the West African nation to an orderly end. Parliament approved the new and final mandate for German troops' participation in the United Nations mission known as MINUSMA uh, by 375 votes to 263 with one abstention. It provided for the deployment of up to 1,400 troops until May 31st of 2024 at the latest. The main opposition bloc had called for troops to be pulled out by the end of this year. The government in November announces plans to wind down German participation in the mission by mid-2024. It said the timing was meant to take into account the election in Mali that was expected on Friday and ensure a structured uh, withdrawal. It was expected to take place in February and ensure a structural withdrawal points that the opposition questioned on yesterday. The decision followed repeated tensions between Mali's leadership and the international community that have already led other countries to set in motion withdrawal plans. Mali has been ruled by a military junta since a 2020 coup against an elected president. It has faced destabilizing attacks by armed extremist groups linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group uh, for the last decade. German military missions overseas require a mandate from Parliament, which is typically granted on an annual basis. With that story, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. 
The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, Worldwide radio broadcasts, go to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. We'll take a break, but we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
And uh, that was the music of Bob Marley and the Whalers uh, from the album entitled Survival. And the track was called One Drop. And you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 27th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting from downtown Detroit. And uh, all this month, we've been commemorating the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. Africa Liberation Day uh, was two days ago, representing that 60th anniversary where at that time, over 30 heads of state uh, gathered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to issue uh, the first uh, charter of the OAU. Uh, right now, we want to bring it up to 2023, and uh, former South African President Thabo Mbeki, who also served as president of the African National Congress, is in Guinea uh, for the annual Thabo Mbeki Lectures. And he did an extensive interview. Uh, let's listen to that at this time. Well, as part of Africa Day celebrations, the Tabombeki annual lecture will for the first time be delivered outside South African soil in Guinea. Let's now take you live now to our international news editor, Sophie Mugwena, who is standing by with the former president. Over to you, Sophie. Indeed, we are here in Guinea, Conakry, where on Saturday we are going to listen to a professor. Uh, he's actually a person from this region, the West Africa region. He is going to deliver a Tabo Baby Africa lecture. You know, every year this time around there's a lecture. And in relation to the lecture, the lecture often looks at uh, issues that are related to the African continent, but of course, there's no way we can ignore issues that are related to South Africa, as South Africa is part of the continent. Thank you so much, uh, former President Tabumbiki, for your time. You are in Guinea, Conakry. Why Guinea? Well, as you said, uh, uh, so few are here to uh, uh, the, to broadcast the the annual Africa Day lecture. Uh, but before I come to that, I must say a happy Africa Day to all of the SABC viewers and listeners, because today is Africa Day, and then the happy Africa Day to all of them. And I hope all of us will be reflecting on the matter as to where we want our continent to be tomorrow and what we do about it, which is why we are in Guinea. Uh, the Africa Day lecture is being held in Guinea because uh, for some years already, the Africa and the rest of the continent has been saying to us the, the Africa Day lecture does not belong to South Africa. So we must not only deliver it from South Africa, but deliver it also from other African countries. So that's why we are in Guinea as the first time this is lecture number 13, uh, first time that, that we deliver it in, a, in an African country which is outside other than South Africa. So uh, it's important and fortunately you remember also that uh, uh, Miriam Akeba, the late, uh, lived here in Guinea for many years. This was her second home. So we thought it was sort of important to, uh, to, to commemorate her. So on the same, after the lecture, there will be a concert uh, 
uh, to commemorate uh, it's, it's in her name, in Miriam's name. Guinea uh, has a particular history in terms of our struggle. As far as I know, it's the only, only country on the continent which had on its syllabus from primary school up to university the South African struggle. So the Guineans, the population, they grow up with this. They know everything about our struggle, about the ANC, about Mandela, about Tambo, and all of these people, in order to generate that uh, kind of engagement of the masses of the Guinean people in that struggle to end us, to end apartheid. So it's the only, only country I know on the continent which actually made it part of the syllabus of the students. I was like from primary to, to university to, to, to ensure you empower the population uh, to participate in the struggle to end apartheid. So we thought that uh, the first time we we're coming out of South Africa to continent, Kenya would be, would be an appropriate place. Last year, former President Mbigi, I remember very well the person who was delivering this lecture, the professor, it was a thought-provoking lecture, particularly it looks like she saw what was coming, that uh, it looks like the AU is struggling to deal with challenges facing the continent. It's time to reflect the Sudan crisis. You have been involved as the chair of the AU high-level panel on Sudan, on Darfur, in fact, but you know the situation there. What's happening in, in Sudan? Why can't Africa be able to resolve the Sudan question? Well, when this conflict broke out, uh, Sophie, between these two armed groups, not armed groups, they are armed formations, both of them official, uh, of Sudan, the Sudan Armed Forces and the, rapport, the Rapid Support Forces. The regional organization, IGAD, acted immediately, constituted a committee of heads of state to engage with the Sudanese to stop this fighting. But those generals did not listen. They didn't listen to the regional body. So in the end, the Americans originally intervened to, to ensure, to evacuate their own people. But in the end, they teamed up with the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, to negotiate this current agreement of a limited cessation of hostilities to enable humanitarian assistance to be delivered. The summit of the African Peace and Security Council is taking place on Saturday, today's hands, same day as we deliver the lecture. Uh, it's meeting, the PSD is meeting at summit level because the interventions by the regional organizations have not succeeded, so the continental organization is now intervening. And we're hoping that uh, it will take a decision about that conflict which goes beyond merely humanitarian assistance. So the humanitarian assistance must, must take place. But in the end, they've got to address the fundamental issue, which was to ensure that Sudan becomes a truly democratic country. The negotiations were interrupted, were disrupted. So they must go back there, show address humanitarian issue. Let's go back to this matter of making sure that Sudan becomes a, a democratic country. Do you get a sense that the two generals are committed to peace talks? I mean, there was, you know, ceasefire 
many ceasefires and unfortunately fighting continues. Well, uh, well, we can only, I can only hope so, Sophie, that they are committed to this because they participated, both of these, in the removal of President Bashir. They teamed up with the civilians to constitute the transitional government. And they agreed, all of them, that the reason, the, the, the task, central task of this interim government made up of the military and the civilians would be to take Sudan to democracy. They all agreed. They've got to go back there. And so I must assume that they were, they were committed when they made them. When they made that commitment, they were, they were being honest. Mm. And that they have not changed their minds on that because in the end, Sudan cannot be ruled by the military. The population will reject that. So it, it is no, if any of the generals think, generals think that they are conducting this war between themselves in order that one of them becomes the permanent ruler of Sudan, it's a false hope. It won't work. So, but the AU must assist them to come back to this issue of a final status negotiation. Let's turn to the Great Lakes region. You were involved uh, in ensuring that uh, the Congolese, there was a dialogue in Sunset. The eastern part is still at war. Why can't the regional body, IGAT, but also the Great Lakes region in general, and SADC also, because the RC is part of the SADC region, be, you know, work together to ensure that there's a permanent solution to that uh, conflict in the eastern part of the DRC, and why, 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 what, why it takes is taking so long? What's taking so long for that conflict to be dealt with? The the origin of the problem uh, is of in the eastern Congo of this conflict. It comes from the Mobutu years when. Uh, the Mobutu regime refused to recognize the Banyamulang, the Rwandan-speaking population of the Eastern Congo as Congolese. And when you then started having a militia formed to drive this Banyamulang out of the, the Congo uh, into, into, into Rwanda. And so long as the central authority in Kinshasa does not regard some of the people in the East as Congolese, so long will the conflict continue. It's not external, it's internal to the Congo. As you know, the, the Kivus in the East are very far from Kinshasa. The country is very big. Where you have government collapsing in the Congo during the Mobutu years, the collapse becomes total as far as the East is concerned. So the local populations who have been told that these Banyamulenge are foreigners, they form militia to attack people. That problem has to be solved by the government of the Congo. It's critical. The Congolese government must take responsibility to say we are Congolese together. There are no Banyamulenge in the Congo who are foreigners. 
So anybody who tries to do anything to, to threaten the Banyamulenge, we, the government of the Congo, will act against that. The problem will be solved. You spoke earlier on about uh, the Peace and Security Council with all the uh, instruments that can be used to ensure that they are on any warning system. The situation in Eswatini, the Sadek region itself, there are challenges. But it looks like the regional body is not doing enough to ensure that uh, you don't find a situation where the region is unstable. You already have a problem in Gabo Delgado. Well, we, uh, as a foundation, we were asked by many people in Eswatini to engage Mata. So we sent in a team there. He spoken to everybody uh, in Eswatini government, uh, the political parties, civil organizations. What's the problem? What's the solution? And as of now, uh, we are standing by to report to His Majesty the King. Uh, this is, we've seen everybody. I told him, the King, that I was going to do that, to talk to the people of Eswatini. So we're waiting for that appointment to go and report to the King to say, this is what the population said to us, and therefore a solution must be found in that context. And I believe that SADC, SADC would support that because SADC is very keenly interested that is assaulting, the problem is what must be solved. I think they would support that, but as far as we are concerned, we are really awaiting uh, that report back meeting to His Majesty the King. Let's look at South Africa. Earlier on you spoke about uh, the leadership, you know, the challenges of leadership on the continent. Back at home, earlier on, uh, you spoke about your concerns around issues related to service delivery and one can set an example of the electricity right now and that uh, this is a recipe for disaster if you don't resolve problems that are affecting ordinary uh, people in South Africa. In your view, are we working very hard as a country to ensure that the concerns of the citizens are addressed? I mean, I'm talking about the MPC meeting today. I mean, people are squeezed. I know. <clears throat> I know, so the uh, I think it's very clear that uh, there are lots, many, many things must be done. For instance, uh, take the question of the economy. You know that in 2020, the government, uh, the business, labor, civil society, everybody said, we must come together in a social compact, agree on a program to address the challenges that we're facing in South Africa. Agreed, agreed. The task therefore is for us as social partners to sit and work on the details. They've tried, they've been meeting at least but nothing has come out of it. Uh, there must be a reason for that. Business have now said to government, rather than wait for a conclusion of a comprehensive social compact, while we're negotiating that, let us do with some limited programs. 
they have presented that proposal to government and hopefully government has, I'm told, the president has accepted that, okay, we'll work together on this six pack while we continue with the broader negotiations. We need to move on that. And so, as a foundation, all we can do is to urge people to act. And so we'll engage the government, we'll engage business to say, is there anything that we can do to undo the blockages if there are any? But it's clear that we are not moving fast enough. If we take a decision, correct decision, in 2020, the problems are too big to be handled by government alone, or business alone, or labor alone. Let's all get together. Very, very correct. And yet, in 2023, we still have nothing. It means there's something we're not doing. The issue of electricity? I was saying to somebody else that, you see, many of these problems require a very careful study to understand practically and honestly what is happening, what the problem is, in order to find right answers. I was saying, for instance, that the government took a decision in 2004. It's in the State of the Nation address in 2004 that we must now, uh, ESCOM, must build new power stations, 2004. Those power stations were Kusile and Mitupi. We have not finished Kusile up to now. That's 19 years later. Well, how do you explain that? So somebody needs to look at that focus, in a focused way. How do you explain this? You can't take 19 years to finish a power station. It's because somebody did not want the power station to be finished. Deliberate, conscious. So what? we must find that out in order to take it to move. Let's look at global issues. The war in Ukraine. You are familiar with politics of the Soviet Union and now you have Ukraine, you have Russia. Your foundation has been communicating with the Russian Federation officials on issues related to food security. Is there a commitment? Do you get a sense that President Vladimir Putin and President Zelensky can engage in talks, judging from the statement that the six leaders from the continent will be going to Kiev and Moscow to try and engage the two leaders? You know Putin very well, I know Mr. President. So they must engage uh, from, an, from an African perspective. The, the, the first thing to do is to stop the firing of the guns, to create a space for negotiations. Because the security issues that are raised by Russia, by Ukraine, are legitimate. Both countries will want to make sure that they are in the right security framework. You can't get there by shooting at each other. So we must go, the Africans must say, stop the shooting. To give space to discuss what is the problem and what is the solution. Must come from them. Centrally, must address the matter of the security. 
Because you... naturally the Russians, the Russians feel threatened to embarrass. So you must remember that during the Second World War, the Russians lost at least 25 million people as a result of that war. So when they say, why is NATO advancing to our borders? It's a concern they have because they remember this history. Germany attacked them in 1941. 25 million people died. Now you have this military organization which is marching towards you. Of course they will say, but we don't want another 25 million Russians dying. So those are the things that need to be discussed and solutions found. Mr. President, on the issue of uh, US and NATO, the ambassador of the United States of America raised concerns around the ANC resolution in relation to global issues and pointed out that uh, the Russian uh, uh, vessel that was in South Africa, Lady R, did come to South Africa to pick up arms. Do you think his concerns were justified? What's your analysis on that issue? No, I mean, if the, if the U.S. ambassador had spoken to me, I would have said two things. One, the law in South Africa does not allow for the export of weapons to countries that are in conflict. It's illegal. So I doubt it. I don't think it happened. If it happened, whoever is responsible must be a criminal, charged criminally. The second thing I would say, as far as I know, the South Africa armaments industry does not produce the sophisticated weapons that the Russians are using. There's no, there's no weapon that the Russians would want to buy from South Africa. Does this remind you of uh, Iraq? Weapons of mass destruction? Sure. I mean, the, the, the issue about the weapons of mass destruction, that one is, I think, even better or worse in that we sent inspectors, arms inspectors, to talk to Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi government. The same people who had handled this disarmament in South Africa, when South Africa dropped its atom bomb, chemical and biological weapons, we sent those people to assist the Iraqis to do the same thing. And they sent a report, we sent a report, to the UN Secretary General to say there are no mass weapons of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They had that report and yet they went to war. And they find that there are no weapons as we had said to them. So if they there, there was a particular political commitment. They wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein. In reality, this thing about weapons of mass destruction was an excuse. Yeah. But I'm saying with regard to this one, uh, the conflict between the, uh, the reason the ANC discusses the matter in this resolution is because that conflict didn't just pop up on a Monday. There's a history to it. And the ANC was trying to draw attention to the history so that you then address the solutions. What are the correct solutions? given this history. And I think there's a legit legitimate, somebody may query 
message is the account of yours is wrong. By the way, what they were trying to do was to make sure that we have a comprehensive understanding on, of this matter so that we then come to the correct uh, conclusions. And finally, Mr. President, South Africa will be hosting the BRICS summit. You were very vocal during your tenure that there must be a strong cooperation from uh, the South-South. Now we have BRICS, which is almost similar to South-South. And uh, But there's this issue. Again, President Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, whom you know very well, there's a warrant of arrest against him. Do you think President Putin will come to South Africa, but also the issue of this warrant of arrest, how should the government or the authorities handle this matter? Based on our experience with Omar al-Bashir, you spoke about uh, the International Criminal Court being the court of the last resort. In South Africa, so as you say, uh, is the current chair of BRICS for this year. So must, South Africa must discharge its responsibilities as the chair of BRICS. The one problematic program in terms of that whole annual program is the summit because of the reasons that you state. Because I do not think that uh, the South African government would ever, ever agree to arrest the President Putin because of its membership of this ICC process. I don't think that will happen. So, so I think these uh, BRICS countries must agree either to hold the summit chaired by South Africa in one of the BRICS countries outside South Africa or hold it virtually. Because I'm quite sure we can't say to President Putin, please come to South Africa and then arrest him. At the same time, we can't say, come to South Africa and not arrest him. Because we're defying our own law. We can't behave as a lawless government. So I'm saying the British leaders must, must agree. Either we hold the summit in one of our other countries, not South Africa, or virtually, but the summit must be held, chaired by South Africa. But I don't think it can take place face to face in South Africa because of this, this problem. How do you finally deal with ICC to avoid these kinds of uh, uh, challenges? We saw it with uh, former President al-Bashir. Well, what is critically important for the continent is that the continent must establish this African Court of Justice, which has been agreed in principle. And the protocol has been agreed. But the countries are very slow in terms of ratifying the content so that then the court can be set up. That's what needs to happen. We need to ensure that Africa does this so that we are not then threatened by the ICC. The people who commit these offenses, offenses detailed in the Rome Statute, can then appear before the African Court of Justice. So we don't have to go to the ICC. That's fundamental what needs to be done. South Africa has a duty to really to persuade these fellow member states of the AU to ratify this thing so that we stop complaining about the ICC because we've got capacity on the continent 
to deal with all of these criminal offenses. I think that's what needs to happen. Thank you for your time, Mr. President. We're looking forward to the lecture on Saturday. And the concert. And the concert, of course. I saw Simpi Wedan. And I saw Simpi Wedan. I can't wait to see you taking the dance floor. Well, so they have not invited me to sing. Not yet. They may do. Thank you, Mr. President. Thanks for your time. That was former President Habombegi speaking to the SABC uh, in Guinea, Conakry. Back to you, Unachi. Welcome back. And uh, that was an extensive interview with uh, former South African President Thabo Mbeki uh, in uh, Guinea, Conakry, uh, where the Thabo Mbeki Foundation is holding its annual lecture. Here's another interview uh, from another network uh, of uh, former President Thabo Mbeki uh, in uh, Guinea-Conakry this week. And we start with a little bit of an Africa Day trivia. Can you tell who said the following words? I am the grandchild of the warrior men and women that Hinza and Sikukune led. The patriots that Gachayo and Pebu took to battle. The soldiers Mushweshwe and Gungunyane taught never to dishonor the cause of freedom. My mind and my knowledge of myself is formed by the victories that are the jewels in our African crown. The victories we earn from Isangrana to Khartoum as Ethiopians and as the Ashanti of Ghana and the Berbers of the desert. I am an African. If you said Tabombeki, you are correct because Vianda Nobo is standing by to speak to the former president. Hello, Vianda. Good afternoon, Dudu. Well, what can I say after such a remarkable introduction for someone who embodies the values and the African Renaissance? And we've just concluded a media briefing here in Guinea, Conakry, of course, We've joined as Newsroom Africa the Tabo Mbeki Foundation that has endeavored to have its first annual Mbeki Lecture, the 13th edition, here in the West African country of Guinea. And of course, it's the country that has birthed the likes of Amaka Kabral, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, and, and our very own Miriam Makeba, who spent 10 years here in exile. And at that briefing earlier, of course, which was basically buttressing and setting us up for Saturday's uh, annual lecture, which will be taking place in the evening and will be bringing all those proceedings to our audiences. One of the key things that came out was that uh, whilst the continent still faces challenges, there is still a lot of hope. And uh, former President Mbeki, welcome to Newsroom Africa on Channel 405. And one of the key things that you just uh, focused on now was that the policies of the AAU, which was formerly the Organization of African Union, are good, but just like many African countries, implementation remains an issue. Now, there's been much criticism, for an example, when you look at uh, the conflict that's currently taking place in Russia and Ukraine. I was watching the news this morning, and uh, Ukraine is saying the policy of non-alignment uh, cannot stand in the current situation. African countries must take a stand. Are we in a position to even do that? Well, thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, I must uh, first of all say uh, uh, a happy Day. Happy uh, Africa Day to you. Happy too. Africa Day to everybody. Newsroom, uh, Newsroom Africa listeners and uh, viewers and everybody else. <clears throat> yes, indeed. No, the, the African response uh, 
to this conflict that is going on between Russia and Ukraine, I must say it's typically African. We see it happening every day on the continent. When conflict breaks out in Africa, all of us will say, stop the shooting. To create the conditions for discussions to end the war. So we can't start. It's, it's, you look at any issue on the continent. The continent will never intervene in any issue by starting to condemn one country or the other. It's because you need to resolve the, the conflict. You don't start resolving the conflict by taking sides. You resolve the conflict by saying, let us sit and discuss this issue. It's in the course of the discussion, of the negotiation, that it becomes possible to say you are wrong, you are right. But that's not a starting point. So whatever demand is made of, of the African continent, that from the beginning the continent must take sides, it's going to take. The continent won't do that. I'm saying precisely to be able to prepare conditions for negotiations and for the continent to be an, an, an honest broker. So then do you uh, agree then with the six countries that are going to now be sending envoys to both Russia and and Ukraine as a part of the peace efforts? So I think it's important that the African continent has intervened at that level. I think it's important because the, that conflict, apart from anything else, has affected the continent very directly. Because a lot of the wheat that we get on the continent comes from there. A lot of the fertilizer that we get comes from there. And when there's a conflict, it, it interrupts those two. So even at the last AU summit, the matter of the fertilizer was raised. Because there are many countries on the continent that have not been able to use fertilizer because of the conflict. And that produces food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying it's, it's important that the African continent intervenes at that senior level and hopefully, hopefully succeed. But part of the criticism from a president has been that you're sending an envoy and heads of states to Russia and Ukraine, and yet right here on the African continent, we still have an ongoing uh, conflict in, in Sudan, which is entering, I think, its sixth week now. You've got the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia. The DRC is one of those six countries that is sending a head of state, and yet in, and yet in the Great Lakes region, they are struggling with the M23 rebels, and the East African community itself has struggled to actually bring about peace in that area. Is it not contradictory? And what message is that sending to Africans? No, no, it's not. It's not contradictory. It's in the air. With, with regard to Sudan, there's a similar heads of state intervention on Sudan. Uh, at the level of the Peace and Security Council, which will meet in two days' time at summit level. So that's not 15 countries. <laughs> of the continent at summit level must meet and say what we do about the Sudan matter. So simultaneously as you will have some Africans traveling to Europe regarding Guinea, I'm sorry, Russia and Ukraine, you have these Africans convening in Africa to deal with, uh, with Sudan at the head of state level. So uh, the, uh, the conflict in, in, in Ethiopia between the central government and Tigray 
fortunately has stopped. But it has not, there are other violent conflicts that are taking place in Ethiopia, particularly in Oromia. So this is a matter that is really work in progress uh, to try and resolve these matters as a whole. And in the Ethiopian case, it's necessary to follow what was agreed in Pretoria to have this political discussion yes. between the government of Ethiopia and the TPLF of, of Tigray, mm. which must lead to a national conference so that all of the Ethiopians together come together to define what kind of Ethiopia do we want. But that's all work in progress. Nothing is being ignored. You've also just lamented now in this briefing, again, it's about implementation and having an African Court of Justice. You'll know that back home there's a consistent discussion about the International Criminal Court, whether or not South Africa should withdraw uh, after it voluntarily signed the Rome Statute. There is that warrant of arrest issued against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Your assessment of what needs to happen here can we actually afford and do we have the capacity to even arrest Putin? Well, I doubt it. I, I, doubt, I don't think the, the South African government would go, would engage in, a, in an action like that against any head of state. I, I doubt it very much. Uh, how they would deal with this matter, I'm not sure. On the other hand, is that the Deputy President uh, of the Republic, Paul Masuatile, is uh, leading a group to find an answer to the question what is to be done. But I doubt if they would uh, arrest the President of Russia or anywhere for that matter. Uh, the, uh, there is indeed a challenge uh, in that it's necessary for the African continent to do what it has decided to do, which is to establish an African Court of Justice, which deals with all of these matters that are in the Rome Statute, like genocide, crimes against humanity, things like that. We need an African Court to do that, so that if the matters are tried on the continent, by our own courts. The problem is that the protocol that is, was negotiated and then concluded some years back, various African countries are reluctant to ratify. Uh, I think it's because many of them think it's the protocol infringes too much on domestic sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, but if they don't have that protocol, that means they then ratify it, then the International Criminal Court becomes a court of first resort. So this complaint we have as Africans, why is the International Criminal Court arresting so many of our people, Africans? It will continue. The reason it's doing that is because we have no capacity, continental-wise. To, to try those particular cases, unless we establish this court. So it's necessary to persuade the African countries. If you're complaining about the ICC, establish African Court of Justice. So then should South Africa withdraw from the ICC? You're talking about these complaints. 
that would still be a process. But in the meantime, the BRICS summit in August is around the corner. What should South Africa do? But they must continue. South Africa is chairing BRICS this year. So it must continue to discharge its responsibilities with regard to chairing of BRICS. Whether it's going to be possible to host a BRICS summit in South Africa, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. The other BRICS works will continue with no problems. But this one particular instance, uh, because I think it would be, uh, I don't think South Africa would not have the strength and the will to arrest a president of another country. So how they deal with that consequence, I really don't know. We have to wait for what uh, the deputy president uh, of the Republic, Paul Machatile, will say with, with, regard to, with regard to that. There's been, of course, there's been a discussion raised that South Africa must have pulled out of the ICC. Yeah. There are procedures in the agreement for how you pull out. You can't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm pulling out. You notice of withdrawal and all of that. So it would, uh, if South Africa decided to withdraw now, the processes to, to withdraw would still be in place by August. South Africa will not have resigned by August. So its decisions on the ICC matter would still be in place. So quite how the matter is going to be handled, I say I, I really don't want to guess. Let's, let's wait for what the government is going to say. I mean, everything that we've spoken about now is how uh, you know, countries outside of Africa have directly uh, directly affecting the continent. And this year's theme is, of course, the, the acceleration of the African continental free trade area, uh, which would create that single market access. But we still rely on countries like the U.S. Um, and the goal is up for renewal. Now, we recently had the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, Ruben Brigadi, making astonishing claims, to say the least, that South Africa supplied arms to Russia, so we are uh, affected by the geopolitical, uh, you know, tensions between these two countries. Do you believe that there's any credence to those claims, and how do you assess the way in which South Africa has managed what is clearly a diplomatic fallout, and some have argued that the U.S. is trying to push South Africa towards a certain stance? Yes, no, the... Uh I saw those reports in the media about U.S. ambassador. My, my immediate response to myself was that uh, it, it sounded to me like a very unlikely story. Because indeed, in terms of the rules and regulations and the law in the country, specifically the law prohibits the exports, export of weapons to countries that are in conflict. It's prohibited. So if there had been weapons sent out, that person must be arrested and charged. It would be illegal, I'm saying in terms of our own law. So I didn't believe the story by, that was said by, by the ambassador. But uh, the, if I had been asked, I would have said there's no such thing that happened. What happened on that boat, I don't know, I wasn't there. But the movement of weapons, I think, is quite unlikely. In any case, 
South Africa does not produce weapons of the sophistication that the Russians are using. Uh, we don't have the capacity. So in other words, we don't even need an inquiry, surely? Well, I, I understand that I'm informed that this matter had been raised earlier by the Americans. And, and an agreement sort of reached that there would be this kind of commission of inquiry which the president talked about, President Maposa, so that it's a credible, if it's a no, it's a credible no, that if South Africa itself said there was no such weapons, people might not believe it. They say, you're just covering up for yourself. Mm. But if you do it under a judicial inquiry, presided over by this retired judge, and they say there were no weapons, then everybody would believe them. I think that is why uh, uh, President Ramaphosa is going the route he's taking. Not because they can't say there were no weapons, but to make sure that the population at large, at home and abroad, believes that whatever is said by that inquiry is credible. We've touched on, on several issues uh, now that are clearly not just South African uh, problems only, but they're continental. It's been a long time since that uh, very now famous speech of yours in the African Renaissance in 1996. When you look at the dream that you had at the time, vis-a-vis -vis the way in which um, things are taking place even in your own home country, there's load shedding, you know, high levels of unemployment, do you still think that dream can be realized, and how? Yes, I'm, I'm sure it can. Not, not only that it can, but it must. It's a part of the task, as I've been saying, is this implementation business. And implementation requires a proper and correct understanding of the situation we, we face in order to be able to produce correct answers. So look at the matter of ESCO. What is the reason for this crisis at ESCO? A decision is taken, for instance, by government in 2004 that ESCOM must build new power stations to 2004. This is now 2023, that's 19 years later. Why is Kusiland still not being finished, power station? Why is it taking 19 years and it's not finished? That suggests to me that it was a deliberate effort on the part of some people not to complete the building of Kusit, to produce a crisis. And that's what I'm saying. It's, you need to understand the issue honestly in order to be able to deal with it. So the progress that we have not made since we talked about that speech, you speech you talked about in 1996. Yeah. Again, we need as Africans to ask ourselves that question, why have we not moved? Yeah. And answer that, those questions correctly, honestly, in order to find the right answers. It's not happening sufficiently. 
So I think there's a need. Look at people like yourselves in the media. To insist on those questions. This is what you said. This is what New York policy as Africans. Why are there no results? So that you oblige people who are in positions of authority to have to look at these matters very critically in order to produce the right answers. That's the only way we are going to reach this renaissance of the African continent. Not, not just to produce wish lists. Yes. Or talk shops. Or talk shops. Really, to have a, a detailed, what are we going to do to achieve this? What in detail, practically. Before, do we have a leadership crisis on the continent if we're talking about being honest? Sure. As part of the problem, definitely. The, we, we are not, we have not done what we should have done. Uh, I suppose in part because uh, my instinct as a political figure is to present myself in a good light. Yes. To say I've got a good story to tell. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> Which means you don't attend to the problem. Yes. So that you, I, I get reelected because I've got a good story to tell. So if, but you have not addressed the problem. So I think the point you're making about leadership is a very important part of, of the problem that we're facing. All right, thank you so much. That's former President uh, Thabo Mbeki there. Well, you heard him do, do plenty of issues to reflect on. The continent needs to reflect. I mean, the country that we're in, it's unfortunate that we've run out of time, but uh, uh, where we are right now uh, is currently under a transitional government. So there was a military coup in 2021, which speaks exactly to the issues of peace and security on the continent, not just in Guinea or West Africa, but across the board. But um, you will know that uh, Mr. Mbeki is one person who always remains positive and always really uh, is a fervent, uh, really, um, ambassador of the continent. And as you've just heard your quotes, to reflecting on that, uh, that uh, now famous speech on the African Renaissance in 1996. Thank you very much for that uh, report and conversation with the former President Thabo Mbeki in Guinea-Conakry. And uh, that was an interview, uh, another interview uh, with uh, former South African President Thabo Mbeki, who was also uh, president uh, of uh, the African National Congress Party uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, the African Union Summit is taking place uh, this weekend, of course, uh, on this 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to uh, the AU. Let's listen to a report uh, on uh, the summit taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, this weekend. News from Africa now as the heads of state convene for the African Union Summit in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Security and food crisis are likely to dominate the agenda. The members will also be briefed on fighting in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and the security situations in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea and Sudan. The next report has more. Deepening security and food crises are likely to dominate the agenda when African heads of state meet in Ethiopia this weekend. This year's African Union summit is taking place against a backdrop of conflict and climate. 
that has driven 44 million people from their homes in sub-Saharan Africa as of last year, according to UN estimates. That's 15% higher than the year before. At the summit in Addis Ababa, AU Peace and Security Commissioner Bankole Adeoye is expected to try and rally support for a proposal of new security operations financing from the United States, African Union members and the European Union. That's according to two diplomats speaking on condition of anonymity. Financing has been a perennial challenge for AU initiatives, such as its peacekeeping mission in Somalia. Bankole and a spokesperson for the Peace and Security Council did not respond to requests for comment. Heads of state will also be briefed on fighting in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as security situations in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea and Sudan. Worsening hunger in several regions will also be a major talking point. It's deepened by conflict and extreme weather that scientists have linked to fossil fuel-driven climate change. Somalia is on the verge of famine after five failed rainy seasons. Hundreds of thousands of people are suffering catastrophic food shortages. In addition to leaders from the 55 AU member states, the summit will also be attended by European Council President Charles Michel and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. African leaders will likely advocate for permanent seats for the continent on the UN Security Council and among the G20 group of large economies. And that was an overview of the agenda uh, for uh, this weekend's African Union Summit uh, being held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on the 60th anniversary of the formation uh, of uh, that organization. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, on uh, Africa Liberation Day.
a revolutionary and a pathbreaker. He dared to challenge colonial subjects and the colonial powers so that ordinary African people could organize for their independence. At long last, the battle has ended. 
He had a vision, he had a dream about Ghana. He broke with the past of bourgeois, uh, gradualist, nationalist politicians. We dedicate ourselves not only in the struggle to emancipate other territories in Africa, our independence is merely left on legs and legs of the total replacement of the African continent. Kwame Nkrumah was the greatest pan-Africanist and socialist revolutionary organizer that the African world has seen. And if the masses of the people pick up on his ideas, Africa will be free. was born 21st September 1909 in a town called Ngroful in the western region of Ghana. Kwame Nkrumah grew up in a colony ruled by the British. There was a governor general and there was a legislative council dominated by colonial commercial interests. The country existed for the export of raw materials that would serve the industries and economies of European nations. He was born to parents who were not particularly endowed in terms of their wealth. The father was a goldsmith and the mother was a petty trader. He is slightly difficult to pin down. He's, he's an Nzema. His dad comes from the Ivory Coast. His mother comes from just the right side of the Ghanaian border. So he's genuinely on the periphery in ethnic terms, he's on the periphery in class terms, he's on the periphery in that he's Catholic. Experiences of a child growing up in a family such as this one, in the colonial era, where the exploitation, the vast exploitation, was done by capitalists from the metropolis, and where citizens were looked down upon in their own surroundings, must have affected him very greatly. His mother, Nyaniba, who he was particularly very close to, um, was very keen um, for Nkrumah to receive an education. He also grew up at a time when um, the Christian churches were trying to make headway there. Almost all the schools that you could attend at that time, and I'm talking of primary schools that were in the beginning, no high schools, were church-run. Nkrumah was a highly affable young man with both his peers and his tutors. However, he was a very serious student, very studious, diligent, had a voracious love of, of reading. And one of his contemporaries by the name of Beverly Carter said that he always used to remember Nkrumah um, forever reading, engaging in philosophy and debating with um, fellow colleagues. He was hungry for knowledge, he was searching for knowledge, he was desperately in search of, of knowledge which was necessary at the time if we were to combat the negative effect of colonialism and racism. Within the, the Gold Coast and generally West Africa, um, from the latter quarter of the 19th century, the minority of educated West Africans were pushing and mobilizing, galvanizing for political independence. I think that Kwame Nkrumah was influenced by a number of very important people as he was growing up in, in Ghana. There were people like James Iman Kwejir Agri, 
Nkrumah says of him in his autobiography that he was a most remarkable man, a man with, um, who possessed um, intense vitality and enthusiasm. And it was through Agri, Nkrumah narrates in his autobiography, that his nationalism was aroused. In a way, Agri mirrored you know, the kind of person Nkrumah wanted to be. He often said, I represent Africa. I've never heard of Agri saying, I represent the Gold Coast. He always said, I represent Africa. Even though Nkrumah was not taught formally by Agri, he used to visit Agri at church and listen to his Sunday evening sermons. And it was through his sermons that Nkrumah was profoundly inspired in terms of his commitment and convictions towards Pan-Africanism. The last person was Nandi Azikwe, popularly and affectionately referred to as Zeke. He's one of Nigeria's great nationalists and he was a publisher. He had been a graduate of Lincoln and as a result um, influenced Nkrumah to go and study abroad. The challenge for Nkrumah to get to the United States of America was basically mainly financial. He didn't have the money. He stowed away on a boat to get to a relative in Nigeria who was quite wealthy because he thought the relative would help. That entailed many risks. Of course, when stowaways are discovered on ships, they kill them and throw them overboard. So it was a big risk that he took. The relative paid for him to go back to the Gold Coast to pick up all his gear and to make final arrangements, paid for him to come to England and paid for his passage to America. The social climate and atmosphere in America during the 40s was just like apartheid in South Africa. Complete and total segregation. He came face to face with the reality of racist oppression. He came face to face with how capitalism exploited even people in the metropolis. Nkrumah went to an all-African school in Pennsylvania, Lincoln University. As a student in America, Kwame Nkrumah faced many hardships. There was a point when Kwame Nkrumah didn't have any place to sleep. He used to sleep in the park and he used to eat leftovers. Kwame Nkrumah slept in different people's houses. He washed dishes. He scrubbed floors, you know, to eat, to have a place to live and study. And that's, that's how he moved about. That's how he moved about. His, his life was very hard. He's working one job and going to two different schools at the same time. But I think the positive of it was that it put him in contact with the African community in the United States who were oppressed. He had an opportunity to do a survey where he was able to go from house to house and learn from the direct experience of the African people. Kwame Nkrumah went to school to prepare himself for a great struggle ahead. He knew he was very conscious of why he was there. And this, I think, sets him apart from a lot of students that had been there. He did enormous amount of reading um, in his own time. Um, and some of the thinkers that he came across and he remarks in his autobiography are individuals such as Descartes, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Marx, and of course, the key influential person he mentions that had a major influence upon him was Marcus Garvey. 
Nkrumah was to say that we prefer self-government in danger to servitude in tranquility. And I believe it is these influences of people like Gavi that informed such statements. Marcus Garvey had the largest Pan-African organization past or present. And his slogan was simple, Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. Kwame Nkrumah made it very clear that the Honorable Marcus Garvey was one of the main persons who actually you know, raised his consciousness when he read the book, Philosophy and Opinion of Marcus Garvey. Um, that ignited his Pan-Africanism and his commitment to the African continent. Pan-Africanism, properly defined, is the total liberation and unification of Africa under an all-African socialist government. Pan-Africanism was a movement, a movement which arose out of Africa's unequal an unfair relationship with the rest of the world. Because at that time, every square inch of Africa, except for Ethiopia, was under direct colonial rule. Pan-Africanism is an ideology which unites the African people wherever they may be in the struggle for their liberation from exploitation and oppression. The first four Pan-Africanist Congresses were held in uh, the U.S. and in Europe and were not attended by Africans born on the continent. So this is what Kwame Nkrumah experienced, you know, during his time in the U.S. When he was not in school, he was busy moving about the United States, working with local organizations and national organizations like the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He participated in many debates uh, in Harlem about Pan-Africanism. Attending Garveyite meetings, attending meetings across the ideological spectrum within American politics as well. And Krumer formed his own organization while he was in the United States which then published a newspaper called The African Interpreter. And that was talking about the need for African unity. He came in contact with a man by the name of C.L.R. James, who was a brother born in Trinidad. He was a revolutionary who followed the socialist ideas of Leon Trotsky, who at least defended the uh, liberation of Africa, the liberation of all the world with socialism. In the 1930s, he hasn't got his driving license yet. He's a young man, an experienced man in the United States. He's meeting some of the right people. He's going to the right meetings. He's reading the right books for an active career in, in anti-colonial politics. And he hits, uh, he hits the ground running in, in, in the early 1940s when he arrives in Britain. Nkrumah came to London um, from 1945 and stayed here until 1947. Uh, awful London. I mean, a London where the lights went out all the time because of power outages. Uh, people were cold. These are Africans living in London where there's no real heating. It's before the, the days of central heating. Uh, one, one burner gas cookers in the rooms. Uh, rationing, of course, still going on. Um, being wet and cold the whole time. And Krumah decided to come to England. It is CLR who introduced him to George Padmore. He knew everybody who was politically active anywhere at all. 
absolutely everybody. And of course this became quite important when Nkrumah got involved with him because Padmore could introduce him to everybody. He contributed a lot towards Nkrumah's vision of Pan-Africanism in particular. Nkrumah in his years in the United States and in Britain was under surveillance. Why would the CIA have had him under surveillance? Well, he was a black man talking about the need for racial equality and against imperialism, which would not have gone unnoticed by the CIA. Padmore, Du Bois and others were in the forefront also of the anti-colonial struggle. And they were also in the forefront of the struggle for socialism for newly emergent nations in Africa. So when Nkrumah comes here, he is under surveillance. I would imagine from the time he spoke at the Manchester Pan-African Conference in 1945, I think everybody who spoke there was under surveillance. In 1945, there was the Fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester, England. And the significance of this particular Congress is that you had representatives from the African continent there. A significant historical gathering of West Indians and Africans um, who came from all over the colonial world. Um, over 200 delegates were represented at the Congress and they demanded an end to colonial rule. It was co-chaired by Kwame Nkrumah, Dr. W.B. Du Bois, and George Padmore. Pan-Africanism really only began to talk about colonial freedom at this conference. There were Pan-African conferences before, but mostly they were focused on racial inequalities. They didn't say we want independence now. Indeed, the final resolution of the Fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester declared that Africans needed to struggle against colonialism and to establish newly independent states under the banner of socialism. The people of the Gokos were not ruling themselves. They had representatives of the Queen of England ruling through her governor. I mean, that was direct colonial rule. I mean, there was no significant infrastructure. The only infrastructure that was here was, of course, roads from the mines you know, to the port. Nkrumah returned to the Gold Coast in 1947 as a result of an invitation by the United Gold Coast Convention, otherwise known as the UGCC, to take up the appointment as secretary for this new organization. Which he'd been noted as a, a young, clever young man. And he's invited back to be the gopher for the United Gold Coast Convention, which in many senses is the first political party in, in Ghana. He was quite suspicious of the leadership of the United Gold Coast Convention because this leadership was made up of um, representatives of the privileged classes. And Nkrumah doubted their commitment to what he would consider to be independence. He found them amateurish. He compared with what he'd seen in terms of political organization in London. He found them uh, undirected, that they were part-time politicians. They were more interested in making money uh, than in politics. Uh, they had personal reasons for being political. Well, here again, it's, it's important to recognize that the colonialists had deliberately 
created an African class which believed in the ideology and believed in the colonial enterprise. This African elite class was interested in ending colonialism, but ending colonialism only to the extent that they assumed the power of the colonialists and continued to maintain the colonial structures. He builds a party within the party of trusted people uh, who have a, links with all the other units of disaffection in, in, in the Gold Coast, the so-called voluntary associations, and these are all sorts of scholars' unions, market women's associations, and he builds links with them, and that's very brilliantly done. As Nkrumah was talking about uh, independence now, the opposing forces were saying, no, we don't need that now. We should struggle for independence at some, at, at some future date. The youth and the grassroots identified with Nkrumah was the privileged classes were trying to just hold them back and also trying to get Nkrumah to, to tone down. He then challenges the involvement of United Gold Coast Convention politicians with the Commission of Inquiry into the riots of, of uh, February 1948, the Watson Commission, and the, particularly their involvement in the Kusi Committee that drafts the new constitution. Their involvement in that is a death knell for them. They're involved with the colonial state in making another colonial constitution. And he denounces them, and he's in a perfect position to do that. He does it very, very cleverly. The pressure from the youth and the grassroots was such that in 1949, Nkrumah broke away from the United Gold Coast Convention and set up the Convention People's Party. On June 12, 1949, he formally launched the Convention People's Party at West End Arena, Accra here. And the party was formed and was born. And all of us registered as men. And right away, of course, there was, uh, there was antagonism on the side of the UGCC, aligning themselves with Europe, while Kwame Nkrumah was aligning himself with the masses of the people in Ghana. The Convention People's Party, or CPP, was created as a vehicle to bring emancipation to the local people of the Gold Coast at that time. No oppressor abandons oppression as a gift to the oppressed. I have not heard of it anywhere in the world. Colonialism is not a tea party. Colonialism is tough. Colonialism is wicked. And colonialism is oppression. And so when you want to get yourself out of this, it's a struggle. You can't get out of it just by passing resolutions and smiling, making good speeches. You have to fight. And you have to remove the oppressor. And if you don't fight to remove the oppressor, the oppressor will even recruit people internally and they'll continue acting on behalf of the oppressor throughout. The campaign for positive action that Nkrumah's Convention People's Party pursued uh, was a strategy very much influenced by Gandhian philosophy and principles. It was a strategy of non-violence and civil disobedience while Nkrumah was calling for positive action, you know, the strikes, uh, the demonstrations and stuff, the other people were calling him a troublemaker and a rabble-rouser. Which then gives the colonial state the excuse for banging up lots of people for inciting an illegal strike. He's banged up. And of course it's absolutely perfect that he's banged up as, a, as his first period of martyrdom. Nkrumah spent 14 months 
in James Fort Prison in Accra. And he plays this to the limit, and he knows enough about Gandhi and, and so on to know this is a clever, a clever and useful thing to do. Meanwhile, the work of the party, which has already been put in train as a well-oiled machine, is going on outside. He wrote letters that he wrote on toilet paper that were smuggled out of the prison and carried to his right-hand lieutenant, Komla Gebedema. The legislation at that time did not prevent him from contesting as a parliamentary candidate. And it became clear at a point in time when the colonial government agreed that constitutional rule for Ghana was going to begin, but Nkrumah was also going to stand. And it then comes to the first general election that Ghana has ever had in, in 1951, which is contested by his political party, the Convention People's Party, although he's still in the nick. He stands for across Central and overwhelmingly wins the seat. England was forced to allow there to be a referendum of independence of staying with colonial rule, in, and CPP won landslide victory. And under that pressure, he's released by, by, by the governor. And because the Convention People's Party won more seats than anybody else, they're asked to, to form the first African government in the Gold Coast, along with colonial officials. The election was met with enthusiasm and excitement everywhere, everywhere in the African world. I mean, Ghana had become now the black star of the world. I mean, everybody looked to Ghana. The British were very clever about it. He should have been prime minister, but they decided, you know, for their own purposes, that he shouldn't be prime minister, but leader of government business. And the British come out of this thinking he's a really good guy, and this is a really smart party that compared with all the other guys who'd been political leaders before, this guy delivers the good. He's a good politician. He's not just a politician, such a statesman. It is my earnest and confident belief that my people in Ghana will go forward in freedom and justice, in unity among themselves. On the 6th of March 1957, Kwame Nkrumah became Ghana's first Prime Minister of an independent state. The Gold Coast now became Ghana. Ghana was the first country in Sub-Saharan Africa to obtain independence. And so therefore he was an inspiration to an entire continent to arise and seek their own freedom from the shackles of colonialism. Nkrumah became Ghana's first Prime Minister of an independent state. The Gold Coast now became Ghana. We're very, very proud, you know, because for the first time we had a Ghanaian in charge of Ghana. From now on, there is a new African in the world. 
that new African is ready to fight his own battle and show that after all, the black man is capable of managing the whole of her. To symbolize that the Gold Coast was now an independent country, Kwame Nkrumah and his Convention People's Government decided to change the name from the Gold Coast to the historically ancient name of Ghana. Ancient Ghana, um, going back as far back as the 5th century, was an ancient kingdom in West Africa and therefore Nkrumah and the CPP decided to revert back to this historic name. Dr. Kwame Nkrumah became known later as Osajifu, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. And Osajifu in the Akan language of Ghana means savior. But he was also known as Showboy and uh, had another series of nicknames to indicate the extent of his charisma, which was electric. His, his slogan was, thought without action is empty, and action without thought is blind. So that we need men and women who think like men and women of action, and act like men and women of thought. The tax then was to begin to build a new nation, united nation. A nation in which its people saw themselves first and foremost as Ghanaians, rather than Ashantis and Airways and Dagombas and so on. So that was the tax. The primary tax was to build a new united Ghana with a distinct Ghanaian identity. The challenges that Nkrumah faces start well before independence. In 1954, the Minister of Finance, who is Kamala Bedema, stands up and presents a paper to the cabinet saying uh, the cocoa price is going to go down, that basically chocolate makers worldwide are overstocked, the price of chocolate is going to go down, there's no market growth predictable in the future, and the conclusions drawn in Cabinet then are what we want to do in terms of social change, advancing the need for education for all, health service, building a deep water port at Tema, uh, improving the infrastructure so that the supply of uh, farm produce to towns and so on can be enhanced and so on. We're going to have to do that fast. So they spend like uh, drunken sailors. Some of the industrialization projects he carried out were the building of roads, there was various schools and hospitals. He poured a great deal of money into education. In a relatively short period of about six years, educational institutions have been built in all the districts of Ghana that introduced fee-free and compulsory education for every Ghanaian child. For all students, both girls and boys, from primary school to higher education. They're using up reserves because it's not going to last. They know that the, there are bad times coming. So that is the fundamental challenge, that if you want to reconstruct the state, if you want to make a modern state, if you want to industrialize the state, and so on, you need cash. There's no serious outside investment at the time. There's a lot of bent outside investment at the time, which is another story. But he, he, the challenge he faces basically is a decline in government revenue. And it's fundamentally a government revenue-based development project that, that he's on about with the first two five-year plans. The construction of the hydroelectric project in Akosombo was key to the industrialization of Ghana. 
with declining state revenues, with an increasingly hostile Western world, but I think also an indifferent Eastern world. Russians always talk about supporting him, but in terms of what actually turns up on the doorstep in terms of cash or things, not very much to show for it. He has gone to the U.S. to raise funds for the construction of the Akosombo Dam. The U.S. didn't want to support, and they were dragging their feet. So he reluctantly had to make a move to the Soviet Union to support. And that was when, when America decided that it's, you know, Kaiser. You have to remember, in the world, there was sort of East versus the West. We were involved in what they call the Cold War, you know, communism versus capitalism. Africa was caught in the middle. All the countries that had become liberated and were fighting for their freedom were vying for that country to be in either the Western camp or the Eastern camp. Kwame Nkrumah and the parliament decided that they must be non-aligned. They were not supporting the West against the East, nor the East against the West, but they were moving forward toward Pan-Africanism. Nkrumah's vision for Ghana was very much a microcosm of his vision for the entire African continent. On the eve of Ghana's independence, Nkrumah made a statement that the independence of Ghana was meaningless unless it was linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. We dedicate ourselves not only in the struggle to emancipate other territories in Africa. Our independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. And so it was, Vice President, that from the very first day of her independence, Ghana served as the rear base for the total liberation of our continent. Nkuma gave practical expression to this declaration by first of all organizing the All-African People's Conference of 1958, at which all the liberation movements in Africa participated and formulated strategies for overthrowing colonialism. Nkuma gave enormous logistical and practical support to various liberation movements, such as Patrice Lumumba of the Congo, Amilcar Cabral of Guinea-Bissau, and Kenneth Kaunda of present-day Zambia, and many others. He invited George Pratmore to serve as his advisor for African affairs. And he also invited the man who had been the president of the five Pan-African Congress, the first Pan-Africanist Congress, all the way through the fifth Pan-Africanist Congress, W.E.B. Du Bois invited him to serve as his Minister for Encyclopedia Africana. Ghana had become the Socialist Republic of Ghana because health care, education was free. There's an African saying which simply put means he who has his mouth in the kitchen of his enemy can never be liberated. And Nkrumah sought to take our mouth from the kitchen of the metropolis. Kwame Nkrumah believed in developing a new way forward where African economies could be transformed to cater for the needs of their own people without being dependent totally on external forces. One of the things that Nkrumah did was to establish a huge cattle ranch to provide the meat that our people needed. He also established a tannery 
to produce the leather. And then establish a shoe factory to turn the leather that has been produced by the tannery into shoes and other leather products for our people. 1964, I was 21 years old. I came to Ghana and I, what I witnessed was just phenomenal. I didn't want to leave. I see new schools being built every day, free education. I see new hospitals being built, new clinics, free health care. I see factories being built by Africans. Not by Chinese, not by South Koreans, but by Africans. In Ghana, you go there and you see African pilots. You see African news presenters. You hear African music, African clothes. And now in Ghana, we got our own national bank. Nkrumah also established the Black Star Line, which was a shipping line to promote trade between the African countries and Africans in the diaspora and so on. The significance of the flag of Ghana, and that is the symbolism held in the star. Just as Kwame Nkrumah said that the African can determine his own future if he's left alone. And the star, it really represents that star that Marcus Garvey, the Honorable Marcus Garvey, you know, had for the Black Star Liner. This would have moved Africa toward economic independence. That antagonized the West. And particularly in Krumah's ambitions to unite the African continent within the context of a union government for Africa also made Nkrumah and his ideas a danger to imperialist interests. Coco, at that time, alongside gold, was one of the key primary products that Ghana was exporting in order to derive foreign exchanging capital to manage its economy. Prices began to decline considerably and therefore this correlated with the declining living standards of most Ghanaians. From a high of 400 pounds per ton of cocoa in some, sometime 1965, it had fallen to about 80 pounds. You also have to remember that this decline in the cocoa prices was manipulated by various Western powers wish to impose an economic squeeze on Kwame Nkrumah's government. And as a result, many Ghanaians became economically and also politically disenchanted with Nkrumah's government. He pegs wages at a time when inflation is raging. Not only does he do that, he demands that uh, workers contribute to um, a compulsory savings scheme and that meant that you, you took some of your wages, but the rest of your wages were produced as a bond which you could cash in, in, I can't remember, three years or four years' time. And of course, these bits of paper were never, never produced. In addition to that, there was also a rise in corruption amongst officials, state officials and CPP officials um, that led many Ghanaians to, to question um, CPP. The National Liberation Movement had taken the part of terrorism against Nkrumah. Supporters of Nkrumah were being killed on, on a regular basis. They were exploding bombs across the country and so on, and generally creating a situation of insecurity. He had a vision for the future. He was not really working for that year. He was, does not work for the public consumption. He was just doing it for the right reason. And that is why a lot of people fell apart and um, 
started to be confused and, uh, you know, doubting his intentions. They thought he was misguided. Imperialist forces stepped up their opposition, stepped up their action. There was about six or seven attempts on Nkrumah's life. In the 60s, there were many assassination attempts on Nkrumah. And one of them actually took place in the Flagstaff house, where he had his office and also his residence. A police officer was planted to shoot Nkrumah. This was a police officer on guard duty who attempted to shoot him with his rifle. He came and just opened the door, and at that time, Kuma was behind that door. It was a very heavy door. So he knocked him with the door and he fell. And Kuma himself disarmed him because he knew some basic techniques. Kuma liked jogging, he liked walking, he liked exercising, he liked doing judo, karate, you know, these little, little things. And you can see from the picture behind me, you know, Nkrumah putting down an assassin, you know, somebody who tried to assassinate him. These activities of sabotage, bombing, continued throughout the regime. Some of the actions he had to take to deal with the sabotage included the Preventive Detention Act where people who were involved in this act of sabotage and destabilization were imprisoned. Today, countries like the United States of America, countries like the United Kingdom, have passed legislation which is similar to the Preventive Detention Act. Are we to say today that David Cameron is a dictator? Are we to say that Barack Obama is a dictator? Because it's essentially passed the same laws. Those laws were passed in response to the anarchy and recklessness of the opposition to Nkrumah. I remember the story which was put out by the opposition to Nkrumah that Nkrumah was keeping people in jail and maltreating them and so on. And they got photographs published in London and other places. Eventually it turned out that those photographs had been taken from a Togolese prison rather than a Ghanaian prison. Now I'm only beginning this research. In two days in the National Archives in Washington, Apart from finding that the consul was helping people form opposition political parties, I also found that in 1964, so two years before the coup, the head of the CIA has a meeting with the head of the State Department, their foreign office, and says, I really think General Ankara would be the best person to take over. Now, if he says that in February 1964, it means he has already been dealing with the people plotting the takeovers and deciding whom to help with the takeover. There's one very, very significant cable which was dispatched from the British High Commission in Accra. And the British High Commissioner in Accra then was A.W. Snelling, who dispatched a cable to the Home Office which simply said, that the British establishment had to get rid of Nkrumah because he was making the African too politically conscious. What damning evidence. The factors that led to the coup that overthrew Kwame Nkrumah's government can be separated into internal factors and external factors. Um, among them were the declining economic situation in the country, whereby 1965, Ghana only had £500,000 in sterling in their reserve account. Nkrumah's 
perceived meddling interference with the army and the police, particularly after the 1964 assassination attempt on him. He had removed the police chief and in the subsequent year, 1965, he'd also demoted several of the generals. Another important factor was also the fact that he had set up a new military structure known as the Presidential Own Guard Regiment with its own security apparatus. And this was to Welcome back. And that's going to conclude uh, our program for uh, today, uh, Saturday, May 27th, uh, 2023. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, in honor of Africa Liberation Day and Africa Liberation Month. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our program uh, today uh, with the music uh, of uh, the legendary John Coltrane. This is taken from the album entitled Africa Brass. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.